Welcome to Season 7 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food anthropologist, Mexican culture, and gastronomy educator. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about my podcast productions, subscribe to my newsletter and find me on social media. Check this episode's notes on your podcast app. I barely had any time to prepare a large recap of the last season. While having Cinco de Mayo around the corner, I decided to do a rebroadcast of one of the most popular themed shows I've ever done, which is, of course, the history of Cinco de Mayo. But this year, there's the added bonus that you can binge listen this episode and revisit episode 78 of the last season, which I recorded with a fantabulous historian, Dr. Edward Shawcross, in which we discuss his book, The Last Emperor of Mexico, which was, of course, Maximilian I of the House of Habsburg, whose short, yield reign was inextricably tied into the context of Cinco de Mayo and the first and second French invasions of Mexico. If you haven't listened to this episode, here's a little teaser to tempt you. So Maximilian is, is very um, unlike his brother, Franz Joseph, who, as you say, becomes emperor of Austria again in 1848. So it's a really important year. Um, Franz Joseph is very autocratic, very rigid, conservative. I mean, reactionary would probably be a better word. What Maximilian is, is he's much more orientated towards Western Europe, right? So countries like Britain, um, France to some extent. And crucially, Belgium, because Maximilian's um, uh, wife is Princess Charlotte, and she's the daughter of the Belgian king. But Napoleon III, devious, devious man. So first of all, of course, for a monarchy, you need a monarch. Um, okay. And that man is Maximilian. But in terms of what Napoleon III needs to do is he needs to convince Maximilian um, that this, this is a tremendous idea and he'll be welcomed as a hero. Now, let's see. What do you think when you hear Cinco de Mayo? For many people in the U.S., it might bring memories of boozy parties with many cliches of Mexican imagery. Well, well, maybe for second and third generation Mexican-Americans can have different meanings. Maybe, you know, about community celebrations and parades. For Mexicans... Well, unless they are from the state of Puebla, Cinco de Mayo is no more than a footprint in the calendar because it's not really even marked as a bank holiday. But for poblanos like myself, indeed, it conjures up what social anthropologists have defined as one of the most important non-religious rituals of identity that is built around the remembrance of the military victory over the invading French army that eventful day on May 5th, 1862. 
This year, we're getting ready to commemorate the 160th anniversary of this battle. And finally, after these COVID hiatus celebrations, we'll resume with a traditional parade, public events, with all the memorials and official acts. The commemoration of this significant event continues giving meaning and identity not only to poblanos in Mexico, but also to the large Mexican-American diasporas in the U.S., who, for the same amount of years, have celebrated the memory and triumph of General Ignacio Zaragoza. Talking about the very complex transformation of the significance of Cinco de Mayo on both sides of the border, requires, well, exploring a big range of topics that go from military history, geopolitics, international relations, and a generous spoonful of cultural studies. For those who are familiar with the show and my many opinions, you know that I often reflect on the negative impact of the oversimplification of historical events that end up adding just noise and confusion with very diluted explanations. And, well, I think you will agree with me with the fact that there's still a lot of people out there that are very confused about what exactly is the meaning of Cinco de Mayo. Is this Mexican Independence Day? Is it the anniversary of the revolution? Why is it so big in the U.S. to the point of even overshadowing the little interest that non-poblano Mexicans have on this date? Well, hopefully all of these and many more questions will be answered in this episode. And in a nutshell, these are the things that you will discover today. First, at the center of the story will be the actual event of the battle. But in order to understand why it occurred, I will attempt to explain how Napoleon III, Emperor of France, the great reformer of Mexico, President Benito Juárez, Ignacio Zaragoza, a young general, and the beautiful, arrogant and naive Hasberg prince that ended up entangled in a history of intrigue, treason, greed, death and glory. Well, I will wrap it up here. And thank you so much for being part of this adventure over the last six seasons. And I'm very excited to set sail to the new shores and adventures that await for us. I hope you enjoy this episode. Part 1. The Birth of a Nation From the early years of the 1800s, it will become clear that this century was going to be very complicated and full of life-changing events. It all started when Mexico was still a viceroyalty of Spain, but the increasingly intense social effervescence due to the fact that the criollo, that is mixed-raced elite, had joined the independentist movement that sent shockwaves through Latin America culminated in the actual war of independence that polarized society between aspiring republicans and royalists 
who didn't want to give up their privileges and would rather remain under Spain's control. In spite of the lack of unity, independence was achieved. And after that, a free nation was born under the name of Mexican Empire. Agustín Cosme Damián de Iturbide y Aramburu was a high-ranking militar that campaigned with the Royalist army, leading many battles hunting down liberal caudillos during the War of Independence. But eventually, when it became clear that the population overwhelmingly supported the independence movement, he um, strategically decided to change sides and signed the Plan de Iguala in 1821 that proclaimed the independence of Mexico from Spain. A provisional government was created and Iturbide was appointed by the Congress as acting head of this government. However, he soon realized that he could still leverage much of the discontent and resentment from the royalists who rallied to support him. And in a shocking turn of events, he suppressed the Mexican Congress and formed a new group of supporters who named him temporary emperor Agustin I, and he was crowned in 1822. With the idea of, of course, finding a suitable permanent replacement. But again, his open ambitions made it clear that he had no intention to giving up this new title and position. And he was a total maverick. In spite of achieving an unforeseen economic growth, he also polarized even more the already volatile political environment. His imperial dreams came to an abrupt end when he lost the support of his allies and he abdicated in March 1823. After that, Congress was reconstituted and Iturbide was named public enemy of the state. And anyone who gave any support to him or his cause will be declared a traitor. With no other choice but to flee, Iturbide's brief exile took place in Italy. And this is when things begin getting interesting. You see, he managed to secure the support of one of Europe's most influential dynasties, the Bonapartes. Marie-Pauline Bonaparte offered the Iturbide family refuge at one of her properties in Liorna. Pauline was sister of Napoleon Bonaparte, an aunt of Louis-Napoleon, who will grow to become Napoleon III. Although there is little known about the Bonaparte-Iturbide relationship, this connection with one of Mexico's most prominent royalists will turn out to be particularly significant in future decades. Conspiracy and political drama were never far from Iturbide's life, and after moving from Italy to England, he then sailed back to Mexico, breaking the terms of his exile. His excuse was that he wanted to warn the interim president of an impending royalist plot to bring down his government which only shows Iturbide's ever-changing political views. Whichever his real plan was, Agustin was apprehended upon his arrival in Mexico and almost immediately executed in the town of Padilla in the northern state of Tamaulipas on July 19, 1824. His execution was a clear political message to the enemies of the Republic. Mexico might have been far from having its future figure out, but Republicans were not going to tolerate another empire. Sadly, this was not the end for the royalists. And after the scandalous execution of Iturbide, in the following 32 years, Mexico went on to have, well, a tumultuous succession of 26 presidents, some of them even lasting less than a year in office. 
But at the end of this period, we arrive to the hugely transcendent presidency of Benito Juárez. Part 2. France Charles-Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, later known simply as Napoleon III, was the son of Louis Bonaparte, King of the Netherlands and younger brother of Napoleon I. Napoleon III was born on April 20, 1808, and grew under the mark of the Bonapartes, a power-obsessed family consumed by their aristocratic dreams and political ambitions. At the age of 28 in 1836, he launched and failed at organizing a coup d'etat to seize power in France. He tried again in 1848, and he was only 32 years old. But after embarrassing himself and his supporters, he fled to Britain, where he remained until the death of the last French king, Louis-Philippe, which cleared the way for the rise of the Second French Republic. Louis-Napoleon ensured the support of conservatives to appoint him as a presidential candidate, and surprisingly he won with a huge majority in 1848. But being a man of ambition, once he realized that he could not secure his re-election, on December 2, 1851, he launched a second coup d'etat, but this time assuming total control of the government. He immediately surpassed the parliament's power, and by 1852 he became Napoleon III, Emperor of the French. Louis was through and through a totalitarian, but also wanted to modernize France, invest in industry and build a new and modern empire. And to do so, he charmed the British by supporting them in the Crimean War in 1853, and with it stirring the tensions between the Tsar Nicholas I and the Ottoman Empire, and ultimately facilitating the Russian expansion something no one really wanted. And all of this was just to prove himself and France that they were a diplomatic force at a moment when no European nation was looking forward joining yet another war. But this is a tale for another podcast. Let's just say for now that the Crimean War was an utter mess. And by the time it ended in 1856, Britain, Turkey, Sardinia and Austria had very brittle diplomatic relations with Russia. And France won some chess pounding, yes, and showing off the shape and size of its army. And this is when things begin to get complicated. By the end of the 1850s, it was clear that Mexico was in deep political trouble. The government of Benito Juárez was dealing with enormous external pressure to keep up with the payments of the foreign debt, which it was clear at that point that wasn't going to be an easy task. But why was Mexico in such financial ruin? Well, the persisting internal political clashes between conservative royalists and liberals was bleeding money and the nation was severely crippled after the disastrous aftermath of the American invasion of Mexico and the many attacks that took place between 1846 and 1848 that culminated in the even worse outcome of the secession of Nevada, Utah, part of New Mexico, California, Arizona, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. 
and on top of that, a perfect storm was brewing, as Mexico's main creditors were growing impatient and wanted reassurance that the ever-so-growing debt will be repaid, and these creditors were Britain, Spain, and, yes, you guessed it, France. I will examine in detail the parallel situation in Mexico at this time in history, but for now, let's just lay out a key series of events. So Napoleon III tried to convince Britain and Spain to join France in a military campaign against Mexico in order to forcibly claim the payment of the debt. But Britain and Spain refused to engage and called instead Mexico to renegotiate the payments. The new terms were agreed and a treaty was signed by Mexico, Britain and Spain in London on October 31, 1861. Napoleon refused to let go of this opportunity to pursue his expansionist ambitions and decided that the Mexican debt to France was excuse enough to invade Mexico, depose President Juarez and create a Latin empire in the West. And for that, he would need the support of Mexican royalists and, of course, the participation of some members of the European royalty to play the part of his political puppets as heads of this artificial empire. Part 3. Benito Juárez. The whole figure of Benito Juárez has been heavily mythologized as part of the mysticism of Mexico's transition into a functional liberal republic with laws and institutions. His personal history is nothing short of the perfect dramatic twists of a political hero. He was born into a poor farming indigenous family in the mountains of Gelatao in Oaxaca, and at the young age of three he became an orphan, and still a child he fled to the city of Oaxaca without even being fluent in Spanish. He then entered a monastery as a foundling, where he received an education, and after some years he was well on his way of becoming a priest, when he suddenly had a change of heart and instead opted out for law. A choice that many years on the road will prove fundamental for the fate of a whole nation. Juárez broke many stereotypes by becoming the first council member of pure indigenous origin. His political career led him to several positions as public servant and member of the judicial court in his home state of Oaxaca. He rapidly made strong allies with radical liberals, the scientific community, and became a prominent member of the Freemasons. He was heavily involved in promoting amendments to the law to inch out the church from the political life and crippling their control over education and restricting the church's ability to ecclesiastical land ownership. These actions, as you can imagine, didn't sit well with the conservative state of Oaxaca, but was highly praised by many liberal intellectuals and politicians across the country. Nevertheless, he was appointed as Attorney General of the state of Oaxaca and soon after became Governor of the same state. Fast forward some years and many tumultuous events, and in another unprecedented move, he was named as Head of the Nation's Supreme Court. The social and political life in Mexico was far from being on a smooth path to becoming a true democracy. The ideological clashes led to numerous armed confrontations, uprisings, and betrayals. And it was clear that if Mexico was to become a modern country, 
it needed to break free from the shackles of the colonial past, and that meant dismantling the power of the church. After stepping up as interim president between 1857 and 1861, due to the escalation of political conflicts, he launched immediately an ambitious reformation plan that ultimately escalated and turned into what we know as the Reform War, a conflict that really became a civil war that lasted for two years, between 1858 and 1860. Now, the main targets of the reforms were the army and the Catholic Church, and the main goals of the reform included restricting army and clerical privileges, the subordination of the church to the civil law, confiscating clerical lands and properties, abolish nunneries and monasteries, passing a decree making education free and secular, passing a law to protect freedom of press, making civil marriages and not religious ceremonies the only legal valid union, abolishing religious celebrations as bank holidays, making religious freedom a right, and the secularization of schools, hospitals and charitable institutions. By any standards, the reform laws were incredibly visionary and groundbreaking, and they became an important precedent for many Latin American countries who tried to emulate them. The old ruling class, well, didn't step back without a fight, and felt very aggravated and personally offended in every possible way. This unrest, anger and thirst for revenge were at the core of the backlash that came after. While the impact and relevance of this liberal triumph became a defining historical moment for Mexico, the challenges were incredibly complex when these events were unfolding. The civil war and constant uprisings added up to the already precarious national economy, meaning the country really was in tatters and Juarez was not only forced to pay for all the broken dishes, as we say in Mexico, but also had to deal with a ticking time bomb that was the mounting international debt acquired by previous conservative administrations, and he faced the onerous task of basically renegotiating this debt, which is the one I mentioned earlier. So he successfully secured a new agreement to repay the interests of the loans to Britain and Spain, but France categorically refused to accept the terms. And that is when France sent fleets and troops to invade Mexico. The French invasion was anything but a sudden decision. Napoleon III had plotted this for a long time, forging secret alliances and sweet-talking resentful Mexican conservatives to join his efforts to depose Juarez and reinstall a European regime that will restore their privileges. Part 4. The Battle We arrive now at the crucial historical moment of the first French invasion in Puebla, which ended with the humiliating loss of the French army on the eventful day of May 5th in 1862. In the collective memory of people from the state of Puebla, the triumph of this battle is deeply significant for several reasons, all of which will become clear as I walk you through the way these events unfolded. And while this historical episode had repercussions for all the nation, the remembrance of it is really only mourned and honored in the state of Puebla and its capital of the same name. 
everywhere else in Mexico is only but a historical footnote on the calendar as it is not even marked as a national holiday. For Mexico, the exaggerated escalation of France's threats sent all sorts of red flags, as it was clear that diplomatic negotiations would not offer any solution and that Mexico had to defend itself at all costs from yet another international threat with potentially devastating results. On April 1862, around 6,000 French soldiers led by General Charles Ferdinand Latrie, Comte de Lorences, who had previously fought during the Crimean War, reached the port of Veracruz. And from there, they fought their way following all roads through mountains and valleys that would lead them to Puebla. Meanwhile, Benito Juárez's government appointed Ignacio Zaragoza, a 33-years-old general, to lead the defense with an initial army of only 2,000 men. The first armed clashes took place in Veracruz as the French troops inched towards Puebla. Zaragoza's familiarity with the rogued landscape played at their advantage, securing strategic attacks that slowed down the advancement of the invading troops, leading them into areas where they could be easily attacked. About two kilometers northeast to the center of Puebla, the forts of Loreto and Guadalupe were the city's most strategic defense points, located on top of the Aguayametepec hills, Zaragoza and his fellow generals, Lieutenants Porfirio and Félix Díaz, González Ortega and Berrio Zaval, among others, counted on maximizing the advantage of these strategic locations. Now, due to the many volatile episodes during the colonial period, a series of special tunnels were built in order to connect key religious and political buildings to secret escape routes that were meant to be used in the event of violent conflicts. Many of these tunnels were not only fully functional, they were further prepared to store food supplies, ammunition, guns, and serve as shelter for civilians, and some were even intervened to make them high enough to allow the cavalry to ride towards the forts from the centre and outskirts of the city, and vice versa. On May 4th, the Republican forces received the distressing but unsurprising news that Mexican royalists, notably many poblanos, had dispatched their troops to join the French. And that forced Zaragoza to prepare a quick counterattack. And in his desperation, he sent messengers to the northern Sierra to beg the towns of Zacapuaxla, Xochiapulco, and Tetela del Rio to join in the defense of Puebla. Now, to Zaragoza's advantage was Lorenz's arrogance that resulted in the delayed reaction of the French army to the fact that they had overconfidently marched with all their troops into a trap. Nevertheless, this wasn't an easy battle, and the Mexican side was outnumbered, less equipped, and spread too thinly on the battlefield. At the height of this battle, and the most critical moment for Zaragoza's army, came in a makeshift regiment of around 2,700 indigenous farmers who were armed with their work tools and machetes and rained down fiercely upon the surprised French soldiers, causing chaos and confusion, which gave Zaragoza and his lieutenants enough time for the cavalry and artillery to regroup and lead the last attack upon Lorenz's army, forcing him to retreat back to Veracruz. 
Amidst the heat of the battle, many French soldiers got lost and it's likely that many others took the chance to abandon their troops and ran away. There are numerous stories of blue-eyed white soldiers that fled into the mountains never to return to Europe. The victory of Zaragoza and his small but fierce Republican forces against one of the world's most prestigious armies became instantly viewed as the event that galvanized the nationalist spirit and temporarily united the population of this bruised and battered young republic, its idealistic president and valiant army. The Battle of Puebla became the perfect metaphor for the triumph of the underdogs whose honor and loyalty overcame the greed and arrogance of Europe. Now, you might think now that with this humiliating defeat, Napoleon III abandoned his expansionist ambitions, but actually that became the perfect excuse to take even more radical actions as he had already set in motion a more complex plan to bring down Mexico and Juarez's presidency from within. Zaragoza had mixed feelings about the outcome of the battle, because while it proved the stature of his men and his own leadership, it also made painfully evident that the underground royalist groups were more dangerous than everyone previously thought, and they were very quick to sell their allegiance to the highest bidder. This also proved to be just a taste of what was to come, but sadly, young Zaragoza wouldn't be around to fight again, as he died of typhoid only four months later. The battle was won, but the war was about to start, and the following year became Puebla's most devastating and dark episode that left a trail of death, destruction and betrayal. But before we dive in, let me sip my coffee and go to a small break. Continue your journey learning and discovering the amazing history behind the delicious Mexican gastronomy and learn to prepare wonderful cultural feasts at home with my ebooks Mexican Market Food, Mexican Fiestas, Mexican street food and Mexican chocolate. With dozens of stories, recipes and vibrant photography, each book is a window into the wonderful culinary traditions of Mexico. To know more about my ebooks and start the making of your own family traditions, go to pasachipotle.com forward slash publications. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you've never imagined. Now you might be wondering at this point, why did Puebla become the ground zero of an international plot to set a new European empire in the Americas? So let me give you a quick review of some aspects that will explain this. Throughout the 289 years that lasted the colonial period in Mexico, the province of Puebla was the most influential territory, as its old geographical extension reached from coast to coast and had the exclusive control of the trade of staple and sumptuary, that is, luxurious products that came from all of Europe, the Far East, Africa and South America, that came into the colony via the main merchant ports of the Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico. 
Puebla was not only a beacon of trade, industry and politics, it also was a proud Spanish city, built with the sole purpose of becoming a beacon of education and spirituality, where even the architectural and urban designs were meant to inspire all colonial cities across the Spanish colonies of the Americas. Prior to the independence of New Spain, it became clear for Puebla that it could not withhold its economic gravitas without having the crucial mining industry. But still, Puebla managed to sustain its influence as the agricultural powerhouse of Mexico and remained the entry point from Europe and was a sort of diplomatic capital that always rivaled with Mexico City. On the other hand, The very noble city of Angels, as the foundational charter pompously declared, was still home of the most conservative and royalist ranks of Mexico, which, as I mentioned before, they were pretty much ready to answer any call that promised the all-poblano aristocracy a return to the old regime. So, with this little context, we can now continue with part five, the siege of Puebla. Ten months after the international embarrassment of France's defeat began a cruel and traumatic siege of Puebla that lasted for 62 days of constant attacks by the French army causing great destruction of religious and civilian properties alike, not to mention the deliberate blockade of food supplies for the city. The siege began on March 16 and ended on May 17 of 1863. But let's see why things turned this way. We left things right after the victory of Juárez and Zaragoza on May 5th last year, 1862. After Zaragoza's death, the Zacatecas-born González Ortega, a seasoned general, was appointed as his successor. As France prepared a counterattack, this second time Puebla was prepared with 24,828 troop members, which included battalions from different states but thousands of them were volunteers who had no experience or military training, and that would prove to be Mexico's main weakness. Seven more forts were equipped to protect the city, along, of course, with Loreto and Guadalupe. Napoleon III had sent the well-experienced General Elie Frédéric Foray, who arrived in Veracruz the previous September with 28,226 soldiers, more or less. Different accounts say different numbers. They also had 5,594 war horses and 549 mules, and a small but significant army of Mexican royalists that mounted to 2,500 members. The initial strategy to arrive in Mexico City, as proposed by the French ambassador Dubois du Saligny, was to simply surround Puebla. But for the French army, it had become a question of honor to avenge their past defeat in the same battleground. There are many and very detailed accounts from all sides about how the siege unfolded, and it will take us too long to explore all these versions, so I will give you a condensed account of the siege. There were a few key strategies that the French used. First, they counted on the Mexican royalists to cut off all access routes to starve the city and prevent any battalion to come in or out. 
They surrounded the nine efforts and built trenches around the center of the city and sustained attacks to attempt to destroy the old Jesuit colleges and other buildings that were used as forts. The operation turned to be painfully slow and with very little success. But as weeks grew longer, Puebla rapidly began to run out of food and the Republican army of ammunition, and only the old tunnels kept a slow but essential supply of food. In spite of the desperate efforts of González Ortega and his commanders, without the essential arrival of reinforcement, rendition seemed the only way to save the city from further destruction and death. Foray sent documents laying out the terms of the rendition to be signed by General Ortega, but him and other high-ranking members refused to sign and only gave their promise to honor their rendition. This, of course, infuriated Foray, who ordered their capture and immediate transfer to France as war prisoners. The trail of chaos and destruction of Puebla was only but the beginning of what was to come. The French army rapidly marched into Mexico City and occupied the capital with the intention to capture Juarez, who rapidly collected as many key official documents as he could and fled the city, starting a period that became known as the itinerant or traveling republic that lasted from May 1863 to July 1867. This itinerant republic took temporary residence in different states, including San Luis Potosí, Saltillo, Monterrey, Chihuahua, the city of El Paso del Norte, and Zacatecas. The doomed Hasburg Empire. been following the unraveling of all these events with so much detail, it will be unfair if I don't take you for a full ride to the culmination of the actual plan of Napoleon III. And I have to warn you, it has more endings than The Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, but I will try to compress it all. While the Cinco de Mayo victory was and still is a relevant event, let's not forget that what Napoleon really wanted was to create an empire and have absolute control over it. And this is the cue for one of our last unfortunate characters to arrive. And that is Ferdinand Maximilian Joseph Maria von Hasburg Lothingen, Archduke of Austria and younger brother of his Imperial and Royal Apostolic Majesty, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Franz Joseph Karl. Maximilian was born in 1832 into the house of Hasburg, and much to his bad luck, like all royal children who are not firstborns, he was destined to a glamorous but tedious and utterly useless life. Maximilian had a vivacious and curious mind, and he was allowed to indulge his interests in arts, literature, music, exploration, science, and liberal ideologies, knowing that he would never succeed his brother, there was no harm in letting him enjoy his privileged life. After joining the Austrian navy, he found a new pleasure in traveling and learning about cultures and spoke several languages. As a true Hasburg, in 1857, following the family tradition, Maximilian married Charlotte of Belgium, daughter of Leopold I of Belgium. On their wedding day, Maximilian was 25 and Charlotte was only 17. 
As it was customary at the time, European nations would outsource their monarchs from the big continental royal pool to ensure political and family alliances, and Maximilian, a married young royal, received many offers at the beginning of the 1860s to, for example, be the head of countries like Poland and Greece, but he would choose to follow the advice of Joseph Napoleon, who had been grooming the couple for years while he was scheming his ambitious plans. Knowing well that he would never succeed his brother as the head of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the idea of becoming an emperor of Mexico seemed all more seducing, and to speed things up, Napoleon III arranged a visit of a Mexican delegation of conservatives who went to charm Maximilian and Charlotte into accepting the invitation, arguing that it was the will and hope of the Mexican people to have them as emperors, which of course wasn't true. Charlotte, who never shied away from her ambitions, eagerly sailed with Maximilian to Mexico in 1864, only a few months after the fall of Puebla. They reached the port of Veracruz on May 29, 1864, and made their way to Puebla. Puebla the brave, Puebla the broken and the land of many closeted royalists who worked earnestly preparing the city for such occasion. And after spending a few days there, they made their way to Mexico City and into the small but lavish castle where they set their permanent official residence, overviewing the city from the hills of Chapultepec. The short Hasburg reign was full of horrifying and strange surprises for everyone, and much to the royalist dismay, they realized that Maximilian was far more liberal and progressive than they envisioned. He actually pushed the continuation of many of Juarez's reforms, especially those regarding education, and transitioning into a representative political system. Maximilian showed a huge interest in Mexico's culture, even adopting the traditional charro dressing as the landed gentry of Mexico used to wear, and shocked everyone by riding from the palace to the cathedral to attend mass. Charlotte was very vocal about the disgust and disapproval of the limited and provincial education of her ladies-in-waiting, who spoke no European languages, besides Spanish, of course, and had no political or intellectual opinions of their own. Maximilian admired Juarez's vision, policies, and personal history, but not so much as to abdicate. Instead, he offered Juarez amnesty if he vowed to swear his allegiance to the empire, which of course was instantly rejected by Juarez. While the imperial couple indulged in a lavish lifestyle, Maximilian rapidly gained fame as a womanizer, and there was a lot of speculation about the fact that such a young couple couldn't produce an heir, and maybe that could have been due to the fact that the emperor had STDs, specifically syphilis. Two years into the empire, Napoleon III decided that it was safe enough to order the return of the French troops back to Europe in 1866. Meanwhile, once the American Civil War had ended and the diplomatic relations between Mexico and the US had healed, there was a real American interest in supporting Juarez's presidency, 
which raised concerns for Maximilian and his nervous Mexican supporters. It became increasingly clear that his empire was running into a halt. After a short confrontation between Juarez's Republican army and Maximilian's troops, the concerned emperor, desperate and afraid, tried to flee the country, only to be captured soon after. Juarez had also come to admire many of the liberal ideals of Maximilian, but regrettable as it was, he had been a puppet of France and the royalists, and he still had to face the consequences for being a foreign usurper of an established government. There was a brief trial, but Maximilian was not present because he claimed to be in very poor health. He was found guilty and sentenced to execution. The sad Hasberg epilogue came after Maximilian and his generals were indeed executed in June 19, 1867, and his body was subject to a gruesome ordeal, much to the Hasberg humiliation. After a botched embalming, his corpse was rapidly decomposing and it was clear that he would not make it in the best condition back to Europe. Locks of his beard were sold, and his eyes were replaced for brown instead of blue prosthetics. If you are morbidly curious, you can Google Maximilian I's corpse and see for yourself. It's like the worst case of failed taxidermy, poor soul. After the carriage that transported Maximilian's body suffered from an accident that flipped and landed Maximilian in a stream, Juarez ordered a second embalming before sending him to Vienna, where he was buried in the Emperor Crypt at the Capuchin Church in January 1868. So what happened to his young widow? Well, Charlotte returned to Europe in 1866 to try and convince their former allies to help her, but her efforts were in vain. It is said that she suffered greatly and had episodes of hysteria and oppression. She remained in the care of her family for the rest of her life and died at the very old age of 86 years old of pneumonia in 1827. Part 7. Legacy With the sudden end of the short and incredibly turbulent Hasbeck Empire, we can close the chapter that brought together Juarez, the indigenous Oaxacan boy who went on to become president, the ambitious and callous Napoleon III, and the liberal and naive Hasbeck prince who went on to find fame and death as emperor of Mexico. But is this the end? Of course not, because I want to tell you a bit more about the cultural and gastronomic legacy of that very short Hasberg empire. Now, along with a couple came the Hungarian head chef Joseph Tudos, who was in charge of the little army of cooks at the imperial kitchen. They produced releves, oysters, braised fillets, souffles, sponges, ices, buttery croissants, ladyfingers, and fancy fondants by the dozens. Tudos was responsible for cooking lavish banquets that set an irresistible trend for the conservative upper class and aspiring middle classes to adopt a fashionable and sophisticated lifestyle. Fine restaurants opened in affluent cities offering French menus during the short empire, and the city of Mexico alone opened 
111 patisseries. The most famous were owned by French bakers Louis Renoir and the Plaisant Frères. Balls, soirees, banquets and concerts were frequently offered at the residence of the emperor in Chapultepec. And to this day, Mexico has a big passion for pastries. And the staple Viennese croissant, or Spanish cuernitos, still is one of Mexico's national favorite pastries. And it is said that in more than one occasion, Charlotte sneaked into the working class districts of the city to drink pulque and eat enchiladas. This might be just an urban legend, of course. But it is true that Maximilian demanded to eat cheese-stuffed chile poblanos, tortillas, and moles as often as possible, much to the amazement of the royal court. Wines, patisseries, bakeries, and French cooking techniques transformed food forever here in Mexico and influenced the creation of new dishes that combined the best of both gastronomies one with an uncanny variety of ingredients and the other with refined methods that could only result, well, in a delicious cuisine filled with spice brioche breads, piquant souffles, tropical tarts, and famously, with la coche crepes. Part 8. Many Endings Actually, finish, finish, finish this episode. I want to make a few last reflections about why Cinco de Mayo became the marketing frenzy for Tex-Mex food, beer, cheap tequila, and margarita bacchanals in the U.S. Now, the actual history of the Cinco de Mayo celebrations in the U.S. will totally surprise many of you because it is actually a truly inspiring and moving story of brotherhood, community building, solidarity, and the quest to bring dignity and a sense of pride to Mexican-American people. And I imagine many of you are raising your eyebrows, but bear with me. Of course, I am not oblivious to the fact that Cinco de Mayo nowadays seems to just bring two incredibly different countries and cultures into a very bizarre clash that brush each other on the wrong side where there only seems to be a commodification of Mexican symbols of identity and the vulgar commercialization of the celebration as an excuse to drink oneself to oblivion and dance la cucaracha. Yes, I am aware of that, but hear me out as I'll tell you about a very sobering and utterly heartwarming book that casts light on this. So the book I will tell you about was written by David Hayes Bautista. He is a professor at the University of California, and he makes a fantastic job explaining the American interpretation of Cinco de Mayo as a festive celebration. He begins with poignant reflections about the fact that thousands of Mexicans were just given away along with the territories that Mexico gave to the U.S. at the end of the Mexican-American War. And no one ever stopped to think about the social and cultural consequences that this will bring to those communities and how this decision forced them to reconfigure their identity and even the relationships with their own families back in Mexico. So after all this land was given away, the now Mexican-American population still remained interested and concerned about the events during the tumultuous 1800s. 
Often the news they received from Mexico were disheartening, confusing and worrying. The internal political fights had pushed the country into chaos. And on top of that, Napoleon III was invading and they could do nothing but watch in horror. So when they received news about the victory of Zaragoza, the general of an army that represented freedom and democracy over the French forces, was genuinely perceived with a spirit of relief and jubilation. After months of bad news, apprehension and impotence, this victory against injustice and abuse indeed meant a vindication by proxy. And at that moment, they felt more Mexican than ever and gave them every reason to celebrate Puebla's triumph. And let me insist here that we are talking about a large community of actual Mexicans who overnight became disenfranchised, pushed around and were struggling to rebuild the social tissue, find their own voice in this new situation of being migrants. And they longed to reconnect with their sense of belonging and feeling proud to be Mexican. After all, General Zaragoza was, well, pretty much like them, because he had been born in the state of Texas, when Texas was still part of the extensive territory of Coahuila. And in spite of being so far from central Mexico, he made a short and impressive military career, serving in the army, and ultimately fighting for Mexico for freedom and for democracy. In Zaragoza, they saw the hero they needed. Now, a little but charming and hugely significant anecdote is that after Zaragoza's triumph, the Mexican community of California raised money to pay for a sword that will be specially forged to honor Ignacio Zaragoza. And after raising more than $15,000, a beautiful sword was made featuring many symbols such as an Aztec eagle, a Californian gold nugget, and the head of a grizzly bear. But by the time the sword was ready to be shipped, they received the sad news that Zaragoza had passed away. So they decided to send it anyways to President Juarez. And the sword was put on display next to other patriotic relics, which sadly went missing after the second French invasion the next year. Realizing that Juarez's presidency was in grave danger and had next to no resources to fight back, the Mexican community in California and other nearby states started raising money through the creation of a total of 129 Mexican patriotic committees and monthly started sending money to Benito Juarez. And these grassroots organizations became key for the Latino and Mexican communities as it gave them voice, structure, and presence. For them, Zaragoza's image became the embodiment of leadership and hope. And one year after the death of Zaragoza, the first organized public celebration of his greatest victory took place in Los Angeles. And the occasion became also a way to celebrate freedom, the end of slavery, defending democracy, and all the values that President Lincoln was also ardently defending. Over the years, the celebration of Cinco de Mayo in the U.S. and particularly in California had been slowly resignified to accommodate different meanings and echoing the values and needs of every generation. But by the time we get to the 20th century in the mid-1980s and 1990s, the marketing industry 
saw a huge opportunity to fully embrace the commodification of pseudo-Mexican symbols and imagery, also foods and drinks, to advertise all sorts of products and focus the attention on the fun and carnival-like aspects of it. And they created a sort of Mardi Gras a la Mexicana. But there are still large Mexican-American communities who take enormous pride in the preparation and celebration of Cinco de Mayo, because it strengthens their sense of community and pride in their heritage and identity. And I often get asked by Americans if I think it is correct for them to celebrate Cinco de Mayo the way they do. And my answer has always come uh, in the form of questions. I ask them, why do you celebrate it? What are you celebrating? Are you comfortable with the way Mexican culture is portrayed? Have you thought about what Mexicans think and feel about it? And so on. You get the idea. Because ultimately, I shouldn't tell anyone what to think or what to do about this. But I can offer different ways to help people understand this phenomenon. And I think the best way to self-assess your own choices in life is by asking yourself if what you do is good for you and others. And if it's offensive to you or to others because it's got less to do with political correctness and more to do with how we view the world and how we interact with it. And following up these sort of philosophical questions, then I turn to you and ask you whether you have Mexican heritage or not, where do you stand regarding Cinco de Mayo? And maybe take the time to ponder about how this episode has helped understand a bit more this historical event, or maybe has raised more questions. How does it make you feel? What do you think is the best way to celebrate Cinco de Mayo? Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. On the notes of this episode, you will find three very important links. One is that to listen to episode 78, featuring an interview recorded with Dr. Edward Shawcross. The second is for you to get El Cinco de Mayo, an American tradition by David Hayes Bautista. And, of course, the book The Last Emperor of Mexico, the dramatic story of the Habsburg Archduke who created a kingdom in the New World, by Edward Shawcross. I have a lot of things going on at the moment, and most of them take me away from the desk. Hitting the road again, this time off to the Maya lands, and that will be followed by some long and quiet archival research. But I will carve time to work on the next episode. Don't worry. Please remember, you can always, always reach out to me on social media. And if you don't follow me already on Instagram, well, you're missing out on important updates and enticing snaps of my current adventures. And of course, if you have a lot to share, then drop me a line to hello at pasachipotle.com. Well, that's it for today, my friends. May season seven take us to wonderful places. Until the next time.